Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Part 9, Licensed Properties. Come on, Annie. Let's go to the movies. Let's go see the stars. <laughs> Cowboy heroes, cops and robbers, glamour and strife, bigger than Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the podcast miniseries 80 Years of DC Comics, presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Tom Panneries. The purpose of these podcast episodes is to highlight genres that have been part of DC Comics' 80-year history but are not necessarily superhero comics or stories that don't necessarily make it on perennial top 10 lists. Last time around, I took a look at comedy. This time around, I'm stepping into something that has become a comics mainstay since the success of Star Wars over Marvel in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and that is licensed property comics. Uh, I actually have done a little bit of research here, and they actually date all the way back to the beginning of the company uh, or at least maybe the first couple of decades of the company and so I've got a few selections that are part of the licensed property or likeness property comics uh, over those 80 years and a few special guests that are coming along with us. So what I'm going to do at first is take a commercial break and when I get back I'll have my very first comic a Dale Evans comic from the early 1940s and my guest will be Stella. Sawete, my name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Backroll and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Backroll and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spalai, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not. Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. 
Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Bats lovers. An old, old lady from New York town goes to see a Western movie every day. And though her knowledge of the West is zero, still she wrote her favorite cowboy hero. And here's exactly what she had to say. I want to go west, young man. Want to go west, young man. I want to see the deer out in Buffalo. Those trail herding cowboys with legs that bow. Just let me listen to saddle horns blow. I want to go west. I want to go west, young man. I want to see the smoke when a five-gun shoots. To meet all the rangers in fur pants suits. I want to see men in platform boots. I want to go west. Oh, let it's me It's all right, sir. With my little doggie barking at my side Just let me see A cactus tree And I'm dying to cross the great divide Now, I want to go west, young man I want to go around with my old lasso To ride in Chuck's wagon with him there, too Just let me live like the rustlers do I want to go west, Man. I want to play guitar with a range quartet To ride across the desert when the sun is set I want to eat where Larry ate I want to go west, young man I want to go west My first comic this time around is one of DC's earliest kind of licensed properties. Early in their uh, history, DC was not necessarily licensing movies or television shows, but they would have comic books starring celebrities. Uh, one of the most famous ones was one that I covered last episode with Michael Bailey, where we talked about the adventures of Jerry Lewis. Uh, this is a comic starring Dale Evans, who was the female partner of Roy Rogers. And... Uh, to, ha- to come along with the, just a very quick look at one story from Dale Evans, number one, uh, from 1948, is the host of Batgirl's Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast. She's been on this show already because we talked about an, uh, a romance comic from back in February. Please welcome Stella. Hello. How you doing, cowgirl? I'm, I'm doing well, partners. Uh, yeah, it's funny because now I'm coming on for these super bizarre issues. The romance was bizarre. This particular story is a little bit bizarre. It is a little weird. Maybe that'll yeah. just be my shtick whenever yeah. you have something. I'll unique. have you on for something. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm going to give a synopsis. And, uh, and if you hear a lot of background noise, Stella and I are recording live from Starbucks. Yes. Uh, which is something we're also doing on one of her shows. Yeah. So, so look for that. It's a crossover. So, um, this came out in September, October uh, 1940. It was covered in September, October 1948. Uh, the best approximation to a release date, according to Mike's Amazing World, oh. is July 2nd, 1948. The artist um, is... There's no writer credit that I can find. The artist credit I found is Maxwell Elkin, and this is his last credit. He worked a bit between 1941 and 1947 for Fawcett and Quality. He did a lot of Doll Man issues and some others, but um, we are going to look at one story. It's it's about a ten-pager in the middle. It's the second story in the book. It's called Readin', Robin, and Six-Gun Arithmetic. 
So, Dale Evans is all about to do her next Western when her studio has says that she won't, that won't be the case. This time she'll be playing a teacher. In order to learn the part, she's been set up with a substitute teaching job in a town called Greedy Gulch. She heads out the next morning and is bored on the bus trip, thinking that in the old days there were bandits and Indians to pep up a dull trip. And wouldn't you know it, there's a bandit. He rides up on his horse, shoots the tire out on the bus, and introduces him as Itchy Finger. Then he robs everyone and takes Dale's watch. Dale starts her job and dresses ultra-conservatively. And then enters my fifth period class, I mean a class full of bandits who are all rootin' and tootin' and illiterate and ready to shoot anything. One of them, Willie Wilkes, turns out to be Itchy Finger and he commits a robbery that recess. But since he can't read, he winds up getting women's girdles for loot. Dale decides to dress all sexy-like the next day. It works. Well, it works in that instead of trying to shoot up the class, they fight with one another over giving her flowers and things like that. Willie, who has become the star student because he realizes that if he wants to read the labels off the boxes he's stealing, so he steals actual valuable things he has to learn to read and pay attention in school, well, he gives her a gift, and that gift turns out to be the very watch he stole from her at the beginning of the story. She realizes that he is Itchy Trigger, and she follows him after school, but she steps on a twig, and he discovers her. She try- He tries to outsmart her at first but then there's some shooting and Dale wins by shooting a big branch onto his head and then shooting the school bell to alert the authorities. Later the sheriff offers her a reward but she tells him to keep it and hire a school teacher with experience then she returns to Hollywood where she finds out that the teacher movie has been cancelled in favor of having her star in something more exciting and dangerous. This is an odd story. What did you think? Oh, my word. Well, first of all, let me say that for once in my life, I I guess I read a comic that my mother would, number one, probably enjoy reading, and number two, knew who the actual hero was and, like, the backstory because she asked uh, what the podcast was going to be about, and I told her what you and I were going to do for BTO, and Mm -hmm. then I I told her Dale Evans, and there's silence, and I said, do you know who that is? She's like, oh, yeah, I did, so thank you for that. Hey, no problem. Um, (laughs) There's a bit of ledger domain in here, some sleight of hand, because (laughs) the entire time all these reports she's getting, I felt like, oh, boy, naughty kids, and I felt like, oh, man, this is basically what I deal with on a day-to-day basis, middle schoolers. She gets in, and a group of adults... It's like the 1940s movie oh western goodness. version of Dangerous Minds yeah. or something. You know? uh, and, yeah, she goes the conservative way to, to basically show off that she this is old hat for her almost. That yeah. They're not going to get at her by picking on the new kid that she has no experience. And if her hair were colored brown, she would basically look like Barbara Gordon in her first yeah, appearance. She, school she, had, oh, like, she, she had the buns and everything. Like the yeah. Buns? Yeah. And then she goes the complete extreme mm-hmm. and decides to dress very, yes, you said very sexy. That's basically it. And I don't, she obviously does not know uh, what it takes to be to be a teacher, but the real excitement, of course, is is what's going on with the with Itchy Finger and the yeah. and the reading and everything. She's got some strong bullets there too. Yeah. I mean, she the, she shoots down a huge twig and then she shoots like across. Now, granted, she's supposed to be like an Annie Oakley type yep. of shot, but she shoots across the campus or the schoolyard to the bell, and the bell just starts going bong, 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 and that alerts the authorities for some reason. It's 
like it's a sniper very, gun. Yeah, I know. Well, it's very, we have to wrap this up in a page. Yeah. You know, but uh, this, funny enough, though, for 10 pages, this took a while, this takes a while to read. Yeah. Um, I would agree. And we both had it digitally. The scan yeah. was actually pretty good, because I've come across scans of stuff from this era that are really hard to read, yeah, like physically hard to read, because they're just not in good condition. I but, did yeah. like that she, um, I don't know, there, there was that mystery element, and mm -hmm. she didn't just stumble upon the robbery and like catch the guy, but yeah. she actually, she figured out like, oh, there's my watch, and then she followed him, and of course, you know, her high-heeled shoe uh, catches the branch, and, and he notices her, and then yeah. the vote for Clancy for school commissioner. So it all goes back almost to education because he wanted to read better in order mm -hmm. to rob better, and then she was able to catch him yeah. by saying, "This sign says that we can get you. You're wanted, dead or alive, and yeah. we can pick you up." And so, it doesn't say that, yeah. but he can't read. And she yeah. takes advantage of that. No, exactly. she's very, very smart, and and. Um, the artwork's really good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, there are Golden Age stories, uh, and this is firmly in the Golden Age of comics, there are Golden Age stories where the art is just not. It's rushed, it's not good, it's stiff. This is dynamic. Um, he does a very good job with her facial expressions. Mm -hmm. um, that last panel of the entire story where he's like, we've decided not to shoot the picture at all, and she's like, ooh, and she's just giving him this side-eye yeah. glare of like, he put me through all of yeah. this. Disgruntled. Yeah, I would totally get up and punch that guy. That yeah, like, he he made her do yeah. training for no reason. She had to go through all of that. <laughs> yeah. Now I don't know how well the likeness is, but I mean, it's like I said, it's a very, very well drawn, uh, well drawn piece, and it's dynamic. And I, you know, I'm looking at. I was very quickly going through the ads mm -hmm. and what's really cool is that when we looked at the romance comic yeah. the ads were very girl centered mm -hmm. because girl boys didn't buy a lot of romance comics these are very gender neutral in fact there's one in the back of this thing here because there's a text piece, there's a real fact thing Tootsie Roll the oh god the Tootsie Roll thing is like I'm going to hunt this big mm -hmm. bear Yeah, Captain Tootsie traps a killer bear and it's like you know back in the this is not like the hostess ads yeah he actually like they mount the bear at the end I'm like wow this is this is like you know <laughs> violent man you don't need a sniper scope to spot the gosh almighty goodness of two chocolatey tootsie rolls like, okay <laughs> and tootsie pops uh, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a tootsie pop the, the world, world may, may never, never know, know. yeah so, but no, this was this is it's a fun little read, and and DC and would have comics like this for for years, even decades. Other companies would pick up with Roy Rogers and, and other stars of the time, and then eventually comedy stars like uh, DC would have Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis, and then eventually, as you get into the 60s, 70s, 80s, you get what I'll be coming up with in my next segment, which is stuff based on licensed products as opposed to licensed people. So, any last words? Um, do you have any? You also were going to find that ad, or is that the ad that you were looking Tootsie for? Tootsie Roll. Yeah, that was the one I was. Okay, talking I wasn't about. sure. But yeah, the Captain Tootsie. Um, do you know any? Like, is this reasonable that there would be adults going to school? I don't know. Okay. I honestly don't know. I mean, it was 1948, so I yeah, I'd have to research that. If it was like a, a night school, it was like everybody goes to the school up the road, and everybody here is just this. Bob Ewell type from To Kill a Mockingbird, these oh backwards goodness. mountain folk, yeah. you know. 
So. But I, yeah, I, uh, I looked up, you know, some videos of mm -hmm. Dale Edmonds and, and Roy Rogers. Yeah. And uh, I feel like it, it captured who the character is in those movies and, and the, the show. And it was fun despite being crazy. So I, I didn't groan or not like it when I was reading it. So it was, it was certainly fun. Now, if it would have gone on for the entire length of the issue, yeah. I don't know if I could have done it. But 10 pages, I think, was a, was a good enough story. Yeah. Okay. So... Um You've been on the show before, but if anybody new is listening to this, tell them where they can find you. Yeah, my own show is Backworld to Oracle, and you can find that at the Batman Universe and slash Backworld Oracle, I guess. And I'm also on the Batman Universe comic podcast, which is a bi-weekly, so every two weeks, so I guess you could say bi-monthly, um, comic podcast that goes over basically Batman and Detective Comics, and then we do some uh, spotlights of other DC books, and then I'm on the comic book film review with uh, Don, Josh, and Chris, and we look at different movies, either they're recent, so like today for instance we're going to review Ant-Man, or they could be old ones, I think the last old one we just did last month was Batman Returns, so each month it's a rotating uh, leader, so we personally choose which one we want to cover, so those are the three you can find me on. I was on the first season of Gotham Chronicle, but I'm going to give up my slot okay. on that one. So there you go. Alright, and I will be back in just a little bit with uh, heading into the 1970s and Hot Wheels. Ooh, Hot and, Wheels leading uh, the way. <laughs> Isn't that what it is? I think so. <laughs> Alright, I'm going to keep that in, and, and now okay. I'm going to take us out, so I'll be right back. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Ariel. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear the Man. Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Only at twotruefreaks.com. Two cars, double eight track, and the Rod Runner Power Booster. Go with the winner. 
So, um, like I said, one of the things that is most known in licensed properties is that of Star Wars and how that really saved Marvel in the late 1970s. And if you look at a company like at Boom Studios or an IDW at the moment, a lot of licensed properties there, a lot of stuff that was based on stuff from the 80s, uh, stuff that we watched as kids, that sort of stuff. Um, But DC Comics licensing stuff for their licensing licensing stuff for their for their books uh for publication like i said goes back all the way to dale evans and and stuff based on toys and movies and things like that does go back further than when like marvel was licensing star wars although through the 80s dc had this sort of hit and miss string of of toy line uh tie-ins i think one of the most famous uh, television tie-ins that was not directly DC related uh, from the 1970s would probably have been Welcome Back Cotter. Uh, that shows up on blogs all the time. But um, and I guess their most famous licensed property comic would have probably been the Super Friends, but that starred cartoon versions of the heroes that they were already publishing. So I don't know if that particularly counts. Uh, what I've got for this to represent this sort of mid-century era of DC Comics uh, that was prior to the 80s and which was the kind of golden age of licensing and comic books is that of Hot Wheels number 1. This comic, Hot Wheels number 1, came out on January 22nd, 1970. It was cover dated May-April 1970 uh, and had a cover by... Alex Toth and Dick Giordano. The price was a whopping 15 cents for 32 pages of comic book. And our creative team is Joe Gill Writer with art by Toth and Giordano. So Hot Wheels are about cars and racing cars and how awesome it is to be to race those cars because it's, well, it's Hot Wheels. And our story is called Wipeout at Le Mans. And the comic, well, it doesn't play, take place on big orange tracks, which you kind of hoped it would, but it takes place on the racetracks in the street. And the cover, we have a, some serious action and a roll call uh, going down the side. We have Jack, Mickey, Tank, Janeth, and Ardeth. And the action shows a driver in a race saying, Dexter and his goon have boxed me in. Who's next? The plot of the issue is pretty simple. Back in 1959, race car champion Mike Wheeler had a wipeout at Le Mans, which is, well, like I said, the title of the story. His son Jack was there to see it, but unlike, say, Hal Jordan, Jack didn't witness his father dying and then go on to get a power ring. Jack just joins his dad in learning how to build cars instead of racing them, and by the time he's 17, his dad has his own custom car shop, and he's got a nice car, and he's got a girlfriend named janet but there's a there's a rival this guy named dexter carter a rich kid who's a total slimeball and just revels in driving recklessly so much the townspeople have a meeting about the teenage driving menace at the meeting jack tells the town about his car club hot wheels and how he and his friends are all good drivers who help people and then they spend time showing the community that over the course of the next month this of course annoys dexter and his gang dexter's demons and they try to sabotage the cars at the legally operated closed racing track before finally challenging Team Hot Wheels to an actual race. 
Mike lets Jack and Team Hot Wheels build a car from the junkers that they have in the back of the shop, and they race Dexter and one of his guys named Dum Dum. Through the whole race, Dexter races dirty, and it looks like Jack's going to lose until he managed to get one of Dexter's tricks to backfire on him. But Jack isn't going to let Dexter get hurt and helps him, well, not broadside a pole at the expense of his own car. Dexter wins, and he gloats about it. But all is not lost because Mike thinks Jack has proven himself and they can build an even hotter car in time for next issue, which is a rematch. You know, I'm doing the synopsis and the review uh, quickly for this because the next comic I have is with another guest, uh, with another guest, so I want to get to that. But I find myself reading a lot of goofy comic books for this series. Uh, Some of them are definitely worth poking fun at. And the thing I've been finding is that some comics that you consider goofy are simply for a younger audience and therefore won't have much sophistication. Throwing a toy line is totally a kid's book. The heroes are upstanding teenagers, and it seems that the book gets goes out of its way to show that these kids are upstanding role models who race cars and they're not total thugs. I mean, I don't know how bad roving gangs of car thugs were back in 1969 or 1970, but I guess it is a good message to send. I mean, hey, ma- hey, mom, the nice kids play Hot Wheels, so it's okay to have them? The story serves to set up a race anyway, and the cars are all drawn to look like Hot Wheels cars that you'd see on toy shelves because, well, this is a Hot Wheels comic, and it's the art that makes this fun to read. I'm not the biggest fan of Alex Toth, or at least what I've seen of his art, but in this, it's really fun. And Toth pays attention to the cars, of course, but he gives the characters a decent amount of personality, he keeps... The mood of the comic light and cartoony as it should be, and there's really not much to say about it beyond that. It's it's a story about a bunch of kids who race cars, and how they're the good kids who race cars. So, you know, there's just about that. But like I said, it was, I think that the series lasted all of about, oh, six issues, and isn't really, I don't think there's probably anything really to write home about, but then again, what were the the licensed comics weren't the big ones in 1970. That, Like I said, that would take another company licensing a uh, mega blockbuster cultural phenomenon to get that thing right. And that will bring us into the 80s, where DC licensed another science fiction series. And to talk about it, I had Andy Leyland from Hey Kids Comics, and we sat down and talked about... V. Hey, Kids Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one! Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved! We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do, we still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.com. Hey, Kids Comics! So remember, Hey, Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? Thank you.
back, moving from the 1970s and on to an era that was clearly, I think we could say, the golden age of licensed property comics, which is the 1980s. Now, of course, if you're familiar with the comic books based on properties outside those comic book companies, you know, characters such as superheroes, uh, so we're talking movies, television shows, toys from the 1980s, you actually tend not to think of DC Comics. You usually think of Marvel. After all, Marvel got the rights to Star Wars in 1977, and they also had a very lucrative deal with Hasbro, producing comics based on both G.I. Joe and the Transformers, among other properties. Marvel at one point had a comic book based on ALF. Uh, so that's that's how that's how deep into the licensed properties they were in the 80s. But um, DC did have a few. They were a bit behind snatching up. Uh, they had an early Masters of the Universe series, but this was before the familiar television show, which really, uh, if you if you listen to people talk about it, was a totally different tone than the original Masters of the Universe creation. Uh, and that really didn't translate to a lot of success. Then they had various... Uh, limited series and ongoings based on the the dud of a toy Power Lords. Uh, they had Atari Force. There was a two-issue Robotech Defenders miniseries that if I ever see, I might buy just out of curiosity because everybody knows that Comico, uh, which was the publisher of Grendel and a number of other comics, uh, was the Robotech publisher. They had Mask, Elvira's House of Mystery, and the various TSR games, Dungeons and Dragons, Lords of the Ultra Realm. Compared to Marvel, it is not impressive. But another series that DC got in the 1980s was V. Uh, based on the Kenneth Johnson created NBC miniseries, V was an attempt to create a successful tie-in to both V and V the Final Battle, just as NBC was giving the franchise its ongoing series. So what I'm going to cover right now is V the comic book number one. And I'm going to be doing it along with someone whom I've been looking forward to podcasting with for ages. He is the co-host of Hey Kids Comics, as well as the host of the Palace of Glittering Delights, which featured a great episode about V. Please welcome Andy Leyland to the show. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. That was a very good introduction. <laughs> I try. You're right about the, the Marvel thing. If you think about when I was growing up, because I'm a little bit older than you. Mm -hmm. uh, Marvel had Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run and Man from Atlantis and all of that stuff. The big surprise for me is Marvel never got the $6 million man. Yeah. Like I, I think that would have been a, a, a proper Marvel property because it's, yeah. a, it's a Marvel comic book anyway, that mm -hmm. series. So it would have fit perfectly in with Marvel. But yeah, DC didn't really have a lot. And V's not really a surprise given it was a Warner Brothers show. Yeah. And um, Marvel in the late 80s when I was a, a I was about 10 when I the first time I collected comics which was G.I. Joe they had a kids line that they created called Star Comics that had Al, that was the ALF comic the, I believe mm -hmm. the Ewoks got grandfathered into that Heathcliff the Thundercats there were a couple of other ones that were um, that was where you got Peter Porker the Spectacular Spider-Ham yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but uh, but yeah they had they had a line of kids comics and then even into the 90s they had they have Barbie ran for Barbie had a couple of titles. Yeah. And ran for like an enormous <laughs> amount of time. And uh, there was a, they had mighty mouse at one point, but yeah, so, so Marvel and I was going through <clears throat> Mike's amazing world 
just to see when DC like was publishing these comics. And um, for until about 1985, there really isn't much. I mean, there's uh, there's the Masters of the Universe, which is a miniseries, then Power Lords, then Atari Force was an ongoing, and then it was just like it was a little bit here and there between until about Star Trek takes off and. Even then, through most of the late '80s, they don't have a lot of a lot of these things. The occasional movie adaptation and stuff like that—they're Super Friends and Superpowers toys and TV show had tie-in comic books, but I wasn't counting that because they are a TV show and toys based on DC Comics characters. So it's you know. It's yeah, not it's necessarily kind of like it's characters anyway. Yeah, so. you're not buying the rights to a property you already own. So, yeah. and Marvel's biggest success, obviously, Conan. Mm-hmm. After Star Wars, Conan yeah. was a licensed character as well. <clears throat> Everyone seems to forget Conan was was licensed, but he was very popular. Yeah, I had forgot they had they had to get the um the license to Conan because you always forget because um it was so old because Burroughs wrote those novels. Was it Burroughs? Yeah, Tarzan. Yeah, no, they, no, Robert, Robert Howard. Robert Howard. Burroughs was Tarzan, right? Burroughs was Tarzan yeah. and John Carter. Yeah. Yeah, and um, but those those Conan novels are from decades before, and you wonder if some of that stuff had slipped into the public domain by then. But I guess it, it hadn't. Um, I'm sure there's a number of of works that are in the public domain that that anybody could take over and start publishing now, but. So, and the license rights to a lot of these things from the 80s, 70s and 80s are so mixed up in other areas and stuff like that. Um, now IDW has this and, you know, the, the rights to um, the rights to the Doctor Who comic, for instance, seems to change companies every couple of years. You know, it's yeah, uh, depending so. on who the BBC wants to have it and what yeah. they want them to be able to do. And yeah, the licensing rights was always strange. Like mm-hmm. um, Battlestar Galactica for Marvel, they mm-hmm. only had the rights to the first five episodes. So they could only use characters and situations from the original three-hour pilot and then the two-part episode that followed. And they did adaptations of those five. And then from then on, they essentially stayed in the void that they go into at the end of episode five. They stay in there. Whereas the TV show, obviously, they come out of the void and they carry on. But they couldn't use stuff like the Battlestar Pegasus and Sheba and all these other developments in the series Marvel didn't have the rights to. Mm -hmm. It was very strange. And when Marvel had the rights to Star Trek as well, they could only use stuff from the motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, and and when they, um, when DC, DC continued the, the voyages, although they would go back occasionally to the original series in the in those comic books, but a lot of times they were just picked. I think they were just picking up continuity uh, when they started publishing Star Trek because by then the movies were actually really really popular. Um, mm. They had no, like oh, they had. Well, the, the I pointed this out. I think it was last episode. Uh, Looney Tunes. They didn't start publishing Looney Tunes until the mid nineties. And you'd think that they would have published earlier considering they'd been owned by Warner Brothers since the late 70s, like outright owned by Warner Brothers. But um, it was Gold Key, I think, or Whitman, like one of those publishers had the rights to Looney Tunes comics for years. 
And I think eventually, you know, they were able to get the rights back. It's like um, Marvel's still not publishing Disney comics because is it IDW or Boom has the rights at the moment? I think it was Boom. I think it's Boom. Boom Studios have yeah. Disney rights, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, and we don't know the details of those contracts and stuff. So, cause I know they, they print new stuff, but they also have, I think they do a lot of reprinting of the old Mickey mouse and uncle Scrooge and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. It does seem odd that Disney can't publish Disney comics. Yeah. It's, it's probably, it's probably a contract thing that existed long before the Marvel, uh, you know, because they probably the didn't deal went through. Yeah. And they probably didn't think what back, you know, back in the day when they were doing the comic books and stuff, um, they probably never thought twice about these things because, you know, when when have comics been a profitable enterprise? In the, you know, with the exception of the early '90s, since the 1950s. Like, I mean, for a company the new like Star Wars, this, one seems to be popular. Yeah, I'm not but even, that's Star Wars. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how it happens. How it shakes out. This one. <laughs> Now, you did an episode about V, but um, I did want to ask, because I, I I don't always make assumptions that everybody's listening here is listening, you know, both ways. Although, if you haven't heard that episode, go out and, and listen to it, because it's it's really, really good. Um, but what was your what was your origin of V, your V origin story, to steal a phrase from Michael Bailey? Um ITV, the ITV network mm-hmm. in the UK, did not secure the rights for the Olympics in 1984. <laughs> BBC got exclusive rights to the Olympics. The Olympics that year were in LA. Yes. Which meant that if the BBC was showing it live, they were showing it in the afternoon and well into the night. Uh-huh. To combat the BBC's <clears throat> Olympics um, programming, ITV bought V. And they stripped both V and V the final battle after the 10 o'clock news, Monday through Friday. And for that entire week, ITV won the ratings war. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I... I did mention this on Pali. Sorry to interrupt. What they did was, with the first episode, was fascinating. They went straight from the news into V with no commercial break, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And if you remember, the first episode of V opens with a news report Mm-hmm. And then we cut to Mike Donovan, cameraman. Yeah. So you thought you were watching the news. And then they, they played it even sneakier. They cut the opening credits to keep you watching what you thought was still the news. It was really shrewd on ITV's part, actually. It was very sneaky. That is... And for years after v, v got rerun on ITV, they never yeah. had the opening credits in it. They would always show that print. That is all, That is very Orson Welles war of yeah. the worlds <laughs> that is very, really very cool. clever on the yeah, yeah that is really cool yeah no no i came i was um when the first miniseries came out i think i was about six and then the final battle came out the following year and um that i watched the first part of about half of the first part of my my dad um taped it and uh because we had just gotten a vcr like a year or two prior. And, uh, you know, that was back in the days where you had three settings of the VCR for the, uh, speed at which you wanted to record. 
Oh yeah, so long you, play shot play you know, the other yeah, one. Yeah. So if you had it was on our visa, it was SLP, which I guess is super long play or something. Um, and it was six. You should have just called that quality picture quality crap. Yeah, but it was six hours. You could fit six hours onto that tape. So what he did is he did that, and then he would he was taping them, you know, so that either. I or he could watch it because my father has a tendency to fall asleep on the couch in front of the television. And (laughs) I remember watching most of part one and I just, for whatever reason, I have a vivid memory of this. I was, um, he was setting up the tape to tape part three. So he had to find the end of part two. And this was a VCR that did not have a remote control because it was a top-loading VCR from the early 1980s. It had a remote control that had a wire in it. You could plug the wire in to the VCR and have the remote control, but the thing extended off like 10 feet. (laughs) So it was no good. It was no good. So he's standing there in front of the television. I'm standing there with him, and he's hitting stop, and he's fast-forwarding, and he's hitting play, trying to find where the... um, where the end of the second episode is because it has a counter on it and not the time. Mm. And he comes across what's at the very, very end of the second part of the final battle, which is the birth scene. And he's like, Oh, okay. So he, instead of hitting stop and fast forward, he hits fast forward as it's playing. And here I am seven years old watching the alien birth scene from V and fast forward. And it <laughs> scared the crap out of me. And I just refused to watch anything associated with V for like the next year or two. And I caught a little bit of it when uh, it was rerun in syndication at some point when I was like in junior high or high school. Um, And I watched, uh, I think, most of the original miniseries. I don't remember if they ran the final battle. No, they did run the final battle because they had, I remember vividly remember seeing the scene where um, uh, Julie rips off the one guy's face John's face mask to reveal the lizard beneath because that was a big big moment but um but it wasn't until college where sci-fi re-ran them and like I was saying before we went on the air um they re-ran them they they, sci-fi cut it up into like hour chunks yeah I was sci-fi challenge the same thing and uh so I watched all the original miniseries all of the final battle and I think like I was saying I got about two or three episodes into the television series and then and and gave it up because that part of it is unwatchable um which is a shame and and i'm glad we got into the the background of it because what i wanted to do was i before i get to the summary um i have to get into a little continuity because and it's not very long and, and my summary is not very long um because dc picked up uh this issue uh, this it's covered date of february 85 it's it's late 84 um, the issue takes place after the first episode of the ongoing series. I actually had to look this up. Um, at the end of the final battle, it looked like the visitors had been defeated. And I think the, the series picks up about a year later. They come back. They had just basically gone into hiding. And they come back and they try to take over the Earth again. And, and L.A., for the purposes of keeping this under budget and you know, keeping it within the same area or whatever. LA is declared an open city, which basically, and I had to look the term up. It basically means that they more or less let them take the city in return for the um, promise of not bombing the city. Uh, One of the most recent examples that we all have 
that a lot of people would know if they said World War II would be Paris during the Nazi occupation of France. The, they, you know, it was, Paris was taken without much damage to it. Um, and of course, that is probably budgetary as well. If, if you have a plot line where the visitors don't have to destroy L.A. in order to take it over, you don't have to build sets that show rubble in Los Angeles. Um, so they take L.A., it's an open city, and that's where basically our, our story, which is called City on the Edge, begins. Um, the cover of the comic is by Eduardo Barreto. It shows various members of the Resistance standing in front of a poster that reads, The Visitors Are Our Friends. And there is a red V spray painted on it, much like you would see we saw in the original miniseries. Our creative team is Carrie Bates, writer, Carmine Infantino, penciler, Tony DiZaniga, inker, John Costanza, letterer, Michelle Wolfman is the colorist, Marv Wolfman is our editor. And the basic plot is this. Uh, the various resistance fighters, which include Mike Donovan, Julie Parrish, and Ham Tyler. Mike Donovan was played by Mark Singer in the, in the movies, uh, in the TV show. Ham Tyler was played by um, one of everybody's favorite. They, hey, it's that guy's uh, Michael Ironside, <laughs> yeah. who has played a number of things. Who I will always refer to as Jester because he was Jester in Top Gun. Uh, they're in a bar talking about the situation at hand. Some visitor assassins show up trying to kill them. They flee. Uh, Julie and Mike make it back to Camp Ham, and a couple other guys have to stow away in a garbage truck, and they're pursued by visitor ships while they're on the highway. Um, and back at camp, they have a, a visitor, basically like airship or whatever they, they, have, they call it, uh, that has been stolen. Willie, who is the character that Robert England played on the television show, was trying to fix it up. Um, he he thought he did. Unfortunately, he did not. It overheats and crashes. They land in a small town where people come out to greet them, and they're holding mysterious boxes, thinking that they're visitors. Uh, there's something in the box, which we don't know. We'll probably find out the next issue. The garbage truck crew tries to commandeer a boat, and they get caught like hey put your hands up and meanwhile behind the scenes in a couple of pages here and there there's an all subplots accounted for portion where diana who's on a mothership in space schemes uh puts up with being dressed down for mistakes and things like that and lane smith i mean nathan bates is on the earth and he's the guy who's been um colluding with the visitors and he's trying to consolidate his own power and they're two of the main villains of they were two of the main villains of the tv show and they're obviously going to come into play here and really that is my summary of v the comic book issue one because it's not a um it's not a dense plot no (laughs) no well there's a lot to read here because it's a 1980s comic yes there's a lot of dialogue even though a lot doesn't necessarily happen so what did you think of, of this one, aside from the fact that it was, like, a lot for a little? Um, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It, it does kind of follow the TV show more than the miniseries, which is to be expected, because it's the TV show that was on the air at the time. Yeah. Um, I don't know where the visitors got their jetpacks from. They never, <laughs> had, any, they never had them in the television show. <laughs> so that was, that was quite odd. The art's weird. It's Carmine Infantino, who yeah. is not at the best point of his career here. No, this is right around the end of the trial of the Flash, so that's that's the Carmine Infantino we're looking at. And all of the faces look like they've been redrawn by the Inca Tony De, De Zaniga. 
Mm-hmm. None of these faces are Carman Infantino faces. But, Certainly not the ones that are supposed to represent the actors, which is still strange because none of the actors look like the actors anyway. It, yeah, with with very few exceptions. There is one panel on page 14 in the bottom right-hand corner where that looks like Lane Smith, kind of. Other than yeah, that... Yeah, if you squint a bit. If you squint a bit, you can kind of see the resemblance to Lane Smith. Donovan, does, Mark Singer's character does not look like him. Um, there's a little Lydia, bit of... Lydia's not too bad. Yeah, there's a little bit of Michael Ironside and Ham Tyler... But for the most part, it's hard. And and this is um this is tough because I know the ser- both miniseries were popular on television, but I think this asks you to assume a little bit too much. I mean, granted, I'm reading this with thirty years um between when this came out and, and you know and now, so if I hadn't if I hadn't seen the show recently, I'd be like, you know, who are these people? Especially on the cover, like it's really hard to tell who's who on the cover. Well, who are most of those people on the cover? I mean, I get that's supposed to be Donovan and Julie Parrish. Yeah. Although I, again, although Eduardo Bretta's cover's good, it yeah. doesn't look like the actors. But who are the others? Yeah, I don't know. Who's the and, kid? Exactly, and it's so the, the problem is that, like I said, DC. I guess that's supposed to be his son. Possibly, and is, so is that supposed to be Kyle Bates above him? Yeah, maybe. Because he's not even in the comic. Yeah. But the, the comic has a weird discontinuity with the TV show in that the TV show, Chris isn't in the TV show until <laughs> about halfway through where he shows up for a couple of episodes yeah. to then basically be there to take Ham Tyler out of the show because halfway through <clears throat> the series, a, a major budget crunch happened mm-hmm. and half of the cast were just wiped out in the first mm-hmm. of an episode. Ham Tyler and Robin, who gave birth to the alien baby, leave with Chris, yeah. ostensibly to go to somewhere else, but we never see or hear from them again. Elias is killed, rather yeah. nonchalantly, just in the middle of an episode. So halfway through the series, they kill off half the cast or get rid of half the cast. So whether or not Kerry Bates, who wrote the comic, didn't know Chris wasn't going to be part of the show from the beginning, I don't know, because Chris is in this. Yeah. Because in the, in the miniseries, Ham and Chris were like Batman and Robin. Yeah. Um, but in the TV series, Chris is nowhere to be seen until he shows up halfway through. Yeah. So that was a bit strange. Yeah, it's... And, um, it, you know, this isn't like... The, they were... When NBC commissioned the show, it was... Uh, Johnson had originally written it as a, as a straight-up uh, Nazi... World War II era um, piece, I believe, and then NBC was like, "Well," or the, the at some point it was like, "Well, we want Star Wars or something," and and that's how this kind of became an alien invasion piece. But by the time you get to this, Johnson's gone because he well, Johnson's long gone by this yeah. point. And there's that there's a big tonal shift in the final battle, especially toward the. I've never liked the ending of V the Final Battle. No, me neither. It, it's like I, I get the the very War of the Worlds plot with the red dust. Yeah, but it just comes from nowhere. Yeah, it's just all of a sudden they've got the facility to manufacture all this red dust. Yeah, and they they do it 
worldwide in the space of very little time. Yeah. It's not earned in the miniseries. V the Final Battle starts off quite strong. Yeah. But the further away they get from Ken Johnson's outline, the more ridiculous it becomes. And that ridiculousness just spills over into the series. The series is... I actually think the, t- the series is one of the worst television science fiction shows ever made. Yeah. And that's hotly contested. I mean, we're talking it's Lost in Space and Man from Atlantis here. So the fact that V is up there is quite impressive. Yeah. But it's more from where it came from. Those are the shows we didn't really expect Man from Atlantis to be any good. Yeah, and Lost in Space is kitschy. V, yeah, and Lost in Space is kitschy fun if you're in the mood. Yeah. But V started well. Yeah. And the fact that it went downhill so rapidly and the fact that we had Starlog interviews from arrogant producers saying stuff like, well, we've got the science fiction audience. We need to concentrate on getting the other people who don't like science fiction. But what they instead did was alienate the science fiction audience by having people who have no idea how to write science fiction write a science fiction television show. And it just became laughably bad. Yeah, and like you and I said, um, we were talking briefly, it's like they took all of... And there was a little bit of a horror element in the first miniseries. It had this very dark tone to it which really worked and yet they with the series the end of the final battle and then into the series and even in this comic book they essentially gave us the a team with aliens and you're right it just doesn't work very well because i realize that when you're on a tight budget with an action show in the 80s you just go into the valley and you shoot scenes at any in abandoned warehouse complex that you can find you know you go down to the docks and and you set up for a you, little you, while you you go to the warner brothers hazard county set exactly which exactly. is where stars hollow was in gilmore girls there is an episode where they go there yeah oh there was a um there was a jennifer love hewitt show that my in-laws used to watch the ghost whisperer Oh yeah, that blatantly used the courtyard set on the Universal backlot because in a number of shots you can see the clock tower from Back <laughs> to the Future because that's save the clock tower. Yeah, because well, it's 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 a it's a it's a set that's been around for decades, even decades before Back to the Future. It's been used in other films, and I think Zemeckis did that on purpose, but. It was like clearly, it's like, oh, we're shooting this on the Universal backlot because I'm like, I've taken that tour when I was in freshman in high school. We went out to California on vacation. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing with it. Back to the Future made it so famous. Yeah, that they were kind of stuck with it at that point. Yeah. But yeah, this this comic, the art's okay. I think Dizaniga makes it better. Yeah, I mean, I'm I don't have to have the actors look like the characters. No. I mean, the Star Wars series from Marvel, only on rare occasions did they look like Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. Yeah. But as long as they look like the characters, that's okay. Whereas in this, it's it's kind of a bit generic. Mm-hmm. Like you say, Michael Ironside occasionally looks like Michael Ironside, but they n- never get Mark Singer. So you end up yeah. with just Donovan just looks like generic comic book action hero. Yeah, and at this point... Which is he, which he is. Yeah, but at this point, the characters from V are not iconic enough for you to get away with that. Like, it's not Kirk and Spock. No. 
with the with the Star Trek comics, it's not Han and Leia and you know you would you would know those characters. These unless you had been seeing all of the shows and the kids who might have been buying this comic off the rack may not have been watching, may or may not have been completely familiar with V. It depended on whether or not their parents let them stay up and watch the show, you know, because it was a, it wasn't R-rated by any means, but for no, younger... certainly the miniseries was more adult-oriented yes. than the series was. Yes, yeah, so it might have been one of those things that, um, as a little kid, like, I knew about, the first one, but never saw it because I was just, my parents were like, no, you're too young to watch this, you know, kind of like how I knew what the Godfather was for many, many, many years before I actually was old enough to finally watch the film, you know, like, and so, but if you know that you don't have the, you don't have the facial recognition of the characters because you haven't been watching all 12 hours or so of the miniseries and and what we have of the series so far so yeah as a first issue goes it's okay but like yeah. you say yeah it, it does rely on you knowing who these people are and what they're up to yeah there's no effort made to introduce the the setup really to the comics reading audience who may not have seen v yeah and they have like and even then <clears throat> the the iconic images that were from V, the visitors, Diana, the motherships are only on a few panels here and there. This is basically yeah. Diana's ch- Diana's not in this at all, really, she is, apart from two pages. Yeah, this it's that two-page spread right in the middle where it's like I said, it's all subplots accounted for. It's like you know, here's Diana and Lydia, and then there's a, a couple of of panels at the bottom of page fourteen of of Bates, um, and then then they get back to this extended chase scene that makes up most of the plot. Um, and Diana is drawn to look like the golden age wonder woman or something. I mean, it's, um, but at least they, at least they kept her hair in place. Cause one of the things I always hated about the V, the, about the V series is that at, at some point in the year that the visitors were away, Jane Badler just discovered Aquanet and her hair goes <laughs> from, seriously, she, she goes from having, I mean, it's, you know, it's the changing styles of the 80s, but she goes from having, you know, a very just kind of blah hairstyle to looking like she walked out of a white snake video. <laughs> and and they, they started putting her in that white outfit as well instead yeah, of a red one. It was just like, no, like, and that was just like a lot of the, at least here, the images of the visitors are very in line of what you would expected from them. You know, they, they, they're clearly derivative of something like the galactic empire where there's a consistency between uniforms, you know, between um, Imperial officers on board a, a starship and stormtroopers and stuff. And you have visitor stormtroopers here. You have a couple who are obviously undercover, uh, or suppo- supposedly, but you know that that visual element works. Um, yeah, they, they managed to get the tech and the uniforms and stuff down. Yeah, the visitor mothership looks like the mothership from the TV show. The shuttles mm-hmm. look like the shuttles from the TV show. Yeah, it's just that the characters aren't great. And if memory serves, this 
the the fact that the TV show made such wholesale changes quite quickly meant that the comic just couldn't hope to keep up with them. Yeah. So they did issues that were all about Ham and Robin and Chris, wherever it was the hell they'd gone to in the TV show. Yeah. And they had a flashback story about Elias that I'm assuming was only a flashback story because they didn't know they were going to kill him off. Yeah, and that was the, um, I think the flashback story about Elias in the comic was the last issue, or the last two issues, I believe. Um, and I was reading in my crack research for this, which basically meant that I went on Wikipedia. Um, they mentioned that issue, this ran for 18 issues. And issue six, 17 and 18 are that flashback story with Elias. 16 actually leads into what was the final episode of the series. Right. So they were keeping, I mean, like I said, this is the only issue that I own. And this is not easy to come by. Um, I'm sure that if, yeah. you, if you find it, it's probably going to be cheap. But it's not like it's abundant in back bins or at least the ones that I've seen. I've only ever come across this one. And I'm sure that if I ever come across another one, I might just buy it for, you know, for shits and giggles and see what, you know, there's only 18 issues of the series. This would, if I can find the other, the rest of the run at a cheap price, it's like, okay, maybe I'll get it. But out of curiosity. Yeah, we, whether it didn't have a large print run, but it's never been reprinted. No, but it's never got like a showcase or anything. But I don't think there's really that much of a demand for it, to be honest with you. No, no, I don't think so either. I think it's it's V by and large is is fondly remembered by people of our age, but yeah. most young the younger generation don't have a clue what it is. Yeah. I mean, had the had the 2009 series, the one that ABC put together, um, been actually, any good? Yeah, been any good and been really successful, they might have dug this off out of the mothballs. And they might, you might have had Sci-Fi running or or another channel rerunning the miniseries just be, to capitalize on that. But that show, which I watched for, half I watched the entire first season. It was boring. Yeah, duller than dirt. Oh. How do you make V boring? <laughs> I mean, you can make B V bad, but yeah. I don't know how you make it boring. Well, you know what they were doing, and. And this is the problem that ABC's dramas had for a little while in the mid-2000s was that Lost was such a huge hit. Or Lost was a pretty big hit for them. Um, it, it, it might not have brought in like, you know, huge numbers all the time, but it was definitely something talked about. And Lost had this long, drawn-out mythology and subplots that either were never re resolved or, or, you know, things, things were – there was a long-term plan eventually when, when they allowed – Damon Lindelof and whoever else was running the show uh, where they said, okay, we're giving you X amount of seasons like you asked. And then they had, they were able to stop spinning their wheels and actually, you know, plan out the thing. Um, the problem was that they started launching all these shows that were in, in a con in a way, very conceptually similar to lost where there was some sort of surrounding mystery to the plot the nine invasion, these sort of things. But the problem was that they were boring because they went right into the mythology and the mystery in this long game right away. Whereas if you watch the pilot from lost, there's not much of that. It's the plane crash. It's how are we going to survive without, you know, devolving into like a Lord of the flies situation. And the whole thing with, um, uh, the hatch and all that, 
all that crazy stuff didn't start until the second season of Lost. They they found the hatch toward the end of the first season. So it was like, but with V, it was it was almost like, okay, we're going to do a long term plan here. It's like, no, you need to you need to bring your audience in with some short stuff. You need you need us to like really like it off the bat, and then you can start laying the, that groundwork for you know whatever long term plan you had. And it was just pretty to look at but boring as shit and they really could have gone back they could have gone back and watched uh the original miniseries to see like you know it didn't take long for um mike donovan to start to uncover the uh the truth behind the visitors in the original miniseries and it didn't take long for the visitors to start taking over Oh no! That, that first episode yeah. of E that Ken Johnson wrote and directed is magnificently paced. Oh, it's tight. It's really tight, and they could and ABC could have could have learned from that, and they just didn't. They were like, "Oh, we're just going to do a series," and you're like, "Nah, you you gotta," you know. See, my thing with the remake was I thought they were desperately trying to do Battlestar Galactica's revamp, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the brains of the people who behind the Battlestar revamp. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of reboots and recastings and changing males to females and all that stuff, unless you've got a pretty compelling reason to do it. Yeah. And Ronald D. Moore outlined in one of his podcasts, the exact reasons why he made every single change that he made and every one of them made sense. Mm-hmm. And when he explains it to you like that, you're going, all right, I can see why Starbucks a woman now that makes perfect sense. Given what you've told me, Whereas the V thing, you get the impression they got the rights to do it and didn't actually know what they wanted to do with it. Yeah. Are we going to do a terrorism allegory like Battlestar's been doing? Yeah. Or do we want to be lost and have an unfolding mythology? And they didn't. They never got the balance right. No. And you always got the impression the actors would try in the best, but you don't bring Jane Badler on and kill her off. Yeah, I know. And you don't bring Mark Singer on for one scene. Because he's still really entertaining. He's currently in Arrow, and he's really quite good. Yeah. And uh, and you read the, um, we both read the the Kenneth Johnson second generation novel. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Scott Rifen. Thank you, Scott. You sent uh, me a copy. And I had, uh, a, and that that's a, a really good copy. book. Yeah. It's it, a really um, enjoyable book. Yeah. It reads in parts like a setup for a sec like it reads in parts especially in the first half of the book where i was like clearly this was your setup for a second television series yeah well he's admitted on his website it was a script yeah and then when they announced the 2009 tv show he was pissed off about it yeah but in his investigations to stop that from happening he discovered he had the film rights yeah so he just went ahead and but then he went ahead and basically finished it, and it and it it works on a lot of levels, mainly because it ignores. Um, in fact, he um, he ignores the final battle, let yeah, alone the series. There's a second version of you know there were the AC Crispin books, and there was the novelization of the original miniseries that he that was republished that he wrote kind of an ending to. So that it tied into and now I've never read it, but he he rewrote the ending or he tacked on a, a short piece at the end of the AC Crispin book when they republished it to tie to lead into the second generation novel. So you could almost have like here's Kenneth Johnson's V in book form. Yeah, um, they, they cut off all the final battle stuff. Yes. 
and, and basically make it tie into the second generation boot. Yeah. Because I've seen that. Because I almost bought it again. Yeah. Until I realized what it was. And then I was like, no, I've already got this. Yeah. And normally, I'm not the biggest fan of when when people do that because I, I'm not the biggest fan when like original creators come back and there's been years of continuity and they're like, well, I want to play with the toys. Like, I want to play with them and they just ignore all of that. Um. But but V the series is so bad. Exactly, it's like this is worth <laughs> ignoring. You know, it's it's not like like as much as I like Paul Levitt's Legion of Superheroes, he had this habit of coming back to the book every once in a while and kind of doing his best to just ignore what was going on until you know, well, my Legion of Superheroes, and it's like yeah, but kind of messing things up for people who actually pay attention to this continuity and stuff. Yeah, you, you can't just ignore what's going on in an ongoing comic book narrative unless you're John Byrne. Oh, the, <laughs> oh that's right. The, the freaking Doom Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he did the same thing with Wonder Woman on some level, too. Yeah, but... That's another. That is another discussion for another. That that is a discussion for when every single one of us does a Wonder Woman episode next year because it's Wonder Woman's seventy fifth birthday in twenty sixteen. And to oh, my I knowledge, I know, I know, I know, and I actually have that issue. It was is very very good. Um, but to my knowledge, most of us in Teacher Freaks don't tend to cover Wonder Woman. So no, it's gonna get a, a ton of Wonder Woman. It's comics, and this is the first time we've done Wonder Woman. <laughs> You're gonna get a ton of Wonder Woman next year in Two True Freaks. Everybody's gonna be like, "Oh, I gotta do a Wonder Woman." <laughs> I don't. I don't think you... I'll do one. I actually will do. Um, <laughs> but uh, but before before we wrap up, final thoughts on on V the comic book. Is this worth picking up out of a fifty cent bin if for for more than just kind of curiosity? Yeah, I think if you're into TV tie-ins or you like your science fiction comic books, it's worth picking up for enough cheapy bins, yes. Okay. It's yeah. worth a read. I wasn't reading it going, oh God, I've agreed to talk about this, which I have done on occasion, <laughs> I have to confess. At least with this, I read it and, and shut it and thought, oh, actually, that wasn't that bad. Yeah. It's quite entertaining, actually. Yeah, I'm kind of curious as to what's in the box um, at the at the yeah. very last panel. It did make me want to go back and... Because I read these when they first came out and I don't even mm-hmm. have them anymore. I, d- I did buy a few of these when they were on the shelves. Mm-hmm. But I've not read it since. And I do remember it tap dancing quite a lot to try and keep up with the show. Yeah. But it, it did make me interested in reading what the next the next issue was going to be. So, yeah. job done then, really. Yeah. You know what's interesting? I'm looking at the cover again, which is not a bad cover. Eduardo Barreto is... Oh, no, it's a great it, cover it, as long as you don't want it to look like the actors. Yeah. What would have been great is that um, uh, if you flip back through DC Comics around this time, maybe about, um, oh, a few months prior, and a lot of times it was a lot of times it was on the inside cover. There was an advertisement for this comic book, which was it was black background, the, the red V spray painted and the comic book. And that was the entire advertisement. Mm-hmm. Had this issue's cover been basically the black background with V on it or something just even simpler, it probably would have been a better, more effective cover. That's sort of just um, that start. But then that's from a design point of view where I'm like, that would have been a really cool cover. 
Or story-wise, if they had done something a little bit more to maybe adapt the series or give us a little bit more of a summary of what had come before this. Because like yeah, I said... I can't help but think a, a comic book adaptation of V and the final battle should have preceded this. Yeah. And if Warner Brothers... If it had been Marvel and Warner Brothers in that symbiotic relationship, I suspect mm-hmm. Marvel would have done one. And yeah. it's quite a surprise, really, that DC didn't. I just don't think DC was really on their game when it came to, to properties and adaptations like this. Because like I said, prior to this, they didn't really have one. Um, Star Trek started up right around the same time as this, and they did start getting it right when the... Because they did three and four as movie specials and tried to cover, tried to do the continuity from there. I don't remember if they ever adapted five. Yeah, they did. Peter David did five and six. Okay. Yeah, I know they did six, because um, I had six at one point. And I think they did Generations as well. Yeah, they lost the license to... And then they lost the license, yeah. They lost the license to Trek, I think, in the mid-90s, between Generations and First Contact, if I remember correctly. So I don't know who adapted the other ones, because IDW's done one of those little omnibuses of all the adaptations of the movies, and they had to do their own own adaptation of Wrath of Khan because no one had ever done one and no. it's awful because <laughs> it doesn't fit in when you're looking through the omnibus you've suddenly got this modern adaptation mm-hmm. of Wrath of Khan in between Marvel's adaptation of the motion, motion picture, picture and DC's adaptation of the search for Spark it's and because, it just doesn't work yeah because between the motion picture and uh, between motion picture and, and search for Spark there really wasn't anybody like after the because that that Marvel Star Trek series didn't last very long no I think that only did about 18 issues didn't yeah. it yeah so it I think they were done before Wrath of Khan, and then the um, DC didn't pick up and pick it up until around the time of Search for Spock. So, yeah, it was kind of in limbo for a while. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, hey, kids! Comics is coming to an end. Cue the oh. piano, tinkly, tinkly music of sadness. Yes, the as uh, Michael is off to university, and then you're gonna walk around like David Banner. And I, I will b- pick up my bottomless brown bag <laughs> and hitchhike down the loneliest road I can find whilst wearing a terrible lumberjack shirt and some flurred jeans. Because <laughs> it's the 70s. <laughs> but Palace of Glittering Delights isn't going anywhere. Yes. Uh, that's all about me. Because everything's about me on that show. And I do whatever the hell I like on that. It could be a, an old 70s Western television show that no one else watches. Or it could be Marvel Star Wars comics from right up to date. So anything that tickles my ivories, that's where it is. Right. Stephen Lacey and I do FF, the fantastic cast, sorry, which is ffcast.libson.com. And Sean Engel, Paul Spatar and I watch every episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine on Listen to the Prophets. And they are on twotruefreaks.com. And I will be back right after this. All right. okay. Bye! Bye. <laughs> My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic Comic books. books. 
I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called News from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. The last a piece of licensed property I want to do is a book that I'm actually currently is currently out and I'm currently buying or Brett is currently buying. And, uh, that is Scooby-Doo team up. Remember, uh, Warner owns Santa Barbara and DC has been consistently publishing Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo related comics, uh, for the last uh, number of years. So Brett and I sat down a while ago and record ourselves reading reading an issue of Scooby-Doo Team-Up, where they team up with the Teen Titans from Teen Titans Go. Scooby-Doo team-up. What's up with this <coughs> I don't know. Let's find out. Featuring Teen Titans Go. Ghost, the insides of a human on the outside. Well, that's disturbing. Enough is enough. <laughs> if Titan's Tower like, is haunted, then I'm calling in. It's just like, that's disturbing. Professionals. Zoinks. Like, no wonder Robin called us. There's like aliens, witches. No, that's just Starfire and Raven. Hi. Teen Titans. Ghost. I love how Raven's just like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
We're used to it. So this is Titan's Tower. We've heard a lot about the Teen Titans. Really, Daphne? And you came anyway? You're Scooby-Doo and Shaggy, right? I'm Beast Boy and this is Cyborg. We're big fans of yours. We're big fans of pizza. Us too. Come on, last one of the snacks is a green skin shape changer. In your dreams, Tin Man. You know, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna like it here, Scoop. Uh -huh. So dude, you guys chase ghosts, right? Do they ever like pull off their heads? No, just their masks. Launch a systemic investigation of these hauntings. Or we could set a trap for the creatures. Velma has a point. We can start by gathering all inf available information on each incident and... Yeah? So the monsters you catch are all just smugglers, crooked real estate, and crooked real estate developers? Not real monsters. That's disappointing. Will you all get serious? We're trying to solve a mystery here. And who ate my slice of pizza? Boy, Robin sure seems different with the Titans than when he was with Batman. I guess everybody acts differently with their friends than they do with a grown-up. He even looks and sounds different. Robin's voice doesn't sound like Shaggy's anymore. Personally, I have always believed that Robin shares many vocal similarities with Green Arrow's sidekick, Speedy. Nope, he beat up Cyborg and Beast Boy. What about Shaggy and Scooby? Nope, nobody got beaten up. Maybe because they're the guests in the house? Maybe. You've already seen one part of this one, Daddy. Okay. It's the one where the bears are eating at the fancy restaurant. Yes. And the tuxedo. Alright, I'm gonna read this. Can we get snacks after this one? Do we have chips? I don't know. If we do, we can get chips and okay. if we don't, we can just get some food right. or goldfish. Okay. I Ready? Now, as I was saying, I'll pull up security camera video from each sighting. We can study the footage for clues about who or what is responsible. Clues? Security cameras? Uh, we don't need that. Right. I mean, I could... How could detailed moment-by-moment -moment video records of everything that goes on in Titan's Tower possibly tell us anything? I don't know. It seems like it could be useful. And besides, there's a lot less terrifying when ghosts are on a TV screen instead of right behind you. This is one of the first sightings. The... Hold it. Freeze the image. See? Right over there. Right over here. Badoom. Whoops, that picture must have triggered my uh, anti-ghoul defenses. Anti-ghoul defenses? So much for finding clues in the video. Not a problem, Fred. Fred. The security vis visitor is stored in the tower's central computer mainframe. We can watch it here. All right. Central mainframe. I'll uh, go set it up. And I'll go uh, make some popcorn. Huh. Beast Boy and Cyborg must be big fans of you guys. They're not usually that helpful for anyone. Come this way, everybody. The computer mainframe is right. Behind that ghost. Like I said, go that way, everybody. Go, ghouls, ghosts, goblins. Oh, are we playing the things that start with G game? I call the grapefruit and the Glorbivox. Glorbivox. Follow Scooby and me, gang. We're like experts at running and panicking. Crash, watch out. And that's how running and panicking usually turn out. Oh, a new game. Is crashing into each other and falling down some sort of Earth custom? When on Earth, one must do as Earthlings do. Plop. Is everybody okay? Unless you count losing every last shred of dignity. That's like never been a problem for us. Well, at least we solved the mystery. You did? Are you kidding? It's pretty obvious. 
The culprits must be the only ones who left the room before the ghost disappeared. The ghoul and goblin are holograms projected by cyborg. And I would have gotten away with it if you weren't if not for you meddling kids. The skeleton is plastic. And the ghost is Beast Boy in animal form. Oh man, I feel like a real estate developer. But why would you pretend to be deceased ancestors? It happens all the time where we come from. Aw, oh, it just started as a prank that Cyborg and I were playing each other, but then it got bigger and bigger. And besides, it's fun. See? Once again, the ghosts weren't real. There was per- a perfect, perfectly logical explanation. I still think it would have been cooler if we pulled off our heads. You mean like this? Now that's what I'm talking about. Okay, fun's over, guys. Pack up the costumes and holograms and phony demon shadows and let's get back to uh, Robin. Like, I don't think that shadow's a phony. What is that? It looks like Trigon the Terrible. Which is like, pack up your phone. Like, what's a Trigon the Terrible? Oh, that is merely Raven's father, the demonic war- ruler of the Netherworld, who lives in- for nothing more than conquest and evil. Netherworld? Like, sorry I asked. That's not my father. It isn't? No, it's my uncle, My- Myron, the mildly irritating. And you're here to conquer the world, readying your your demon hordes? Well, the Titans stand ready to defend the Earth. No, no, it ain't nothing like that. I'm just here to visit my niece. No schemes for world domination? Nope. No demon hordes? Uh-uh. No pitiful howls of unending torment as fire and brimstorm ring down from the sky? No baruni. Then welcome to Earth. Want a cookie? <sighs> like, what a relief. Your uncle might look creepy, but at least he's not a menace. Not a Who menace? Who said them welcome to Earth, want a cookie? Robin said welcome to Earth, and Cyborg said want a cookie. Not a menace? We'll see. Yes, picky. So why do they call you Myron the mildly irritating anyway? I have no idea. Oh, by the way, poke, poke, poke. Hey, quit it, poke, poke, poke. Really, come on, quit it, poke, poke. Hey, who ate all the roast beef, and the hot fudge, and the pickles, and the spray-on cheese, and the borscht? It was Myron, the mildly irritating. Aye, my eyes! What rubbing me? What rubbing me? What a robot got? What a robot got? Rock it up! Rock it off! Raggy! Anybody mind if I polish my toe jam? You have to do something about your Uncle Raven. He's so annoying. Told you so. Oh, all right, I'll go talk to him. Ravy poo, you have to go. Go? I only got here six days ago. How can I leave my itty bitty wavy poo behind? I'm too old for baby talk. Don't be a silly billy wavy poo. What's your whittle itty bitty smile? Kitchy kitchy coo, kitchy coo. Ah! <coughs> ah! I can't take it anymore. That guy's so annoying. He's a menace. I told you so. And those told you so's are getting on my nerves, too. All right, I'm the leader of the Titans. I'll take care of it. I know, look at his big mouth. I know, right? I'll take care of it. A situation like this calls for subtlety, direction, a few well-placed hints. Yeah, he's always sitting around in his robe. Get out! Vamos! Amsgray, take a powder. Asa la visa, chupacabra. Did you say something? I'm in a world of my own when I'm watching my soaps. What soaps? Like soap opera. You know how Grammy and Poppy, Grammy watches the soaps? Her stories? Oh. Oh, you're asleep when she does. See, Grammy used to watch this show called All My Children. Like when I'm, um, 
trying to re-get an app on my iPad, there's this app called ABC Soaps. Yes. In the person. In the purchase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grammy used to watch a show called All My Children and One Life to Live, and then those went off the air. And now I think she watches a show called The Young and the Restless and General Hospital. I think she still watches. I think General Hospital is still on. I keep hearing her talk about General Hospital. Oh, okay. All right. You see steam coming out of Robin's ears? Yeah, that's... Nope. So that's why they call you Red Robin. Yum. Red Robin. Yum. Well, he is a demon. Maybe he needs to be exercised. Leave it to me. And one, and two, and one, and two. Just get your get your job floor in motion. Without the pain, there is the absence of the gain. Do you know what exercised means? Yeah. You know what that how it's spelled there with an O. That means, like, you're possessed by a demon, and they do, like, a ceremony to get the demon out of you. But Starfire thought they meant exercising, like, you know, jumping rope. Oh. So. I regret to say that it did not work. Myron is still here and rather pumped up. I know how to handle a demon. We're experts at this sort of thing. You just pull off their masks. Ow. Oh, right. You're not wearing a mask. Now what? That's my Myron. Now what? That's my name. Don't wear it out. Myron the mildly irritating. We are the incredible terrifying spirits of the earth. Flee this dimension, dude. Yeah, or we'll haunt you. And we'll uh, pull off our heads. You guys gotta be kidding. Who could possibly be gullible enough to be scared of the two of you roast and that's like a ghoul again ring ring like run for the hills or the valleys or other any place that isn't here womp you can't be serious oof oh myron oops sorry you dropped your infernal estates infernal estates for the discriminating demon your luxury home away from hades what is that I bet I know what it is and what it means. You're a crooked real estate developer from the netherworld. What I er? Okay, okay, yeah, that's right. Have you seen the netherworld? What a dump. People are there are dying to get away. The earth's the perfect spot for building high-priced luxury vacation homes. After I annoy all the people into leaving, that is. Leave the earth? Ow, we should have known. After all this time, we could spot a crooked real estate developer a mile away. What's wrong with you? I'm not wearing a mask. Oops, force of habit. Aha, I knew there was a fiendish plot here somewhere. Well, the Titans stay ready to defend the Earth. Ah, uh, don't bother. I already realized my plan wouldn't work anyhow. Nobody want to live here. Truly? Why would they not? These ridiculous ghost outfit pulling my horns every two minutes... I can't even stand still without some dog knocking me over. I'm not half as annoying as you meddling humans. Maybe the locals will be less obnoxious in the fifth dimension. I'm out of here. Yes! We save the earth again! By out-irritating an irritation demon? Who'd have believed it? Yay! What can I say? It's a gift. The end. Did you want to go get a snack? Yeah. And I'd like to thank Stella and Brett 
and Andy all for coming on. Uh, you, like I said at the be- at the end of her segment, you can find Stella at Batgirl's Oracle. Um, you can find Andy over at the soon to be gone. Uh, riding off to the sunset, Hey Kids Comics, but also the Palace of Glittering Delights. And Brett pops up here every once in a while. As for me, uh, I will be back probably in a week or two with the next installment of this series. And it will cover the one licensed property that seemed to be conspicuously absent here. Yes, I'm going to take some time next episode to talk about Star Trek. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics.